Where there is no vision, the people perish. You've probably heard that before. It's a quote from the King James Version of the Bible from the first half of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I've heard that used in politics by political leaders who say they're the ones that can provide the vision that the people need. I've heard it in a business context where every business needs to have a leader with vision in order to be successful. And there may be a kernel of truth in that. But more often I've heard it in a religious context where, where there is no vision that people perish. Well, let me uh, share a couple quotes with you from uh, some prominent evangelical religious leaders regarding that verse. Listen to the spin they put on it. Quote, Your dreams determine your destiny. To accomplish anything, you must first have a mission, a goal, a hope, a vision. Without a vision, the people perish. Hmm. Let's listen to another quote from a prominent religious leader. They, the people, can't focus, can't reach their goals, can't follow their dreams. An older translation says, without vision, the people perish. I've seen it with my own eyes. Without vision, people lose the vitality that makes them feel alive. Vision, according to these authors, is an integral part of church leadership. A, a leader who does not cast and follow vision leads his church towards destruction. The words, the people perish, is often interpreted by proponents of church growth movements to mean that churches without clear vision will lose members and be unable to numerically grow and flourish. But is that really what this verse is teaching? Is that the conclusion we should draw from this verse? Well, let's read the entire verse, not just the first half of the verse. And I'll read it to you from the King James Version, which is a, a very good version, a great version of the Bible. Uh, I enjoy the King's English. I went to Shakespeare the last couple nights. Uh, I, I like that. And, and so uh, we're going to use the King James Version. Let's see what it says. Proverbs 29, 18, the, verse 18, the whole thing. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keeps the law, happy is he. Hmm. You wouldn't know from the first half of that verse that it has anything to do with keeping the law or God's word. In the Proverbs, like much of Hebrew poetry, there's a relationship between the contrast drawn in the first half of a verse of a proverb and the second half of that proverb. Here, the one who keeps the law is contrasted with the one who has no vision and is described as happy. And the one who has no vision will perish. Some modern translations will make the contrast even more apparent for us. 
from the ESV, so you can turn there in your own Bible if you want, 29.18 of Proverbs, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Huh. That kind of changes the focus a little, doesn't it? Listen to the NIV, the New International Version. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Said another way, here's the Mike Holloway translation, where there's no revelation, no prophetic word, no word from God, no vision, the people will pursue evil. The people will do what is right in their own eyes. You see, this verse is telling us what you need is the word of God, and without it, people will pursue destruction whose end is the way of death. The word for vision in this verse, as used in the King James Version and the ESV, refers to divine communication from the Word of God. The words of God revealed to men and women, not to having a church or a business or a a nation that is led by a visionary leader with a passion for some, for, 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 for an idea. No, what we need, what this verse says we need is the Word of God, the, the revelation of God. That's what we need. This verse tells us what happens when God's word is ignored and undermined and underscores the importance of God's revelation, of honoring it, of following it, and warns those who would wander away from it or water it down by sloppy or deliberate abuse. And now with this introduction, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 3. For what we have as we come to 1 Samuel 3 is a people doing that which is right in their own eyes. They are led by two prominent priests, by spiritual leaders, the sons of Eli and the high priest of Israel, Eli himself. Last week in 1 Samuel 2, we saw them stealing from the offerings brought by the people in order to fill their own bellies. They even stole the best of the meat before it was cooked. The the meat that was supposed to be honoring to God. In addition, the sons of Eli were publicly engaged in sexual immorality in the very shadow of the temple gates. In the holiest place in all Israel. Theirs was a corrupt and immoral leadership. And while their father Eli lectured them about their sin against God, he nevertheless tolerated it. Basically gave them a slap on the wrist. Five points in my sermon today. Point number one, as we go through all of 1 Samuel 3 and then the very first half of chapter 4, verse 1. Point one, a sliver of light. In a dark place, verses 1 to 3. Follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Here we have the grace and the judgment of God in one verse. 
The grace is the fact that Samuel, the firstborn son of Hannah from back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the, the little boy who was dedicated to serve in God's house in the temple, and he's being raised, he's being brought up by God to restore God's word and godly leadership to God's people. And he, this little boy Samuel, is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Samuel is in the temple. God is preparing him to lead. The judgment that's here is that the word of God is rare. There is no frequent vision. See, the word of the Lord is God's gift to his people. And in these days in Israel, it is seldom seen. Why? Other passages of Scripture talk about the absence of God's Word as a sign of God's judgment. In light of the ongoing rebellion of Israel, their spiritual bankrupt leadership, the Lord has withdrawn the light of His Word and allows Israel to wander in the darkness they seem to love so. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, a famine is threatened by God in judgment of ongoing sin. But it's not a famine of food or of water, but a famine of God's words. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I personally found the word of the Lord rare in a couple of uh, times in my own life. Not because the Bible wasn't present, because today there's Bibles everywhere, especially in America, but because spiritual leaders who had no regard for the power of the Word and instead preferred to tell stories about themselves or their families or their friends. Back in 1992, I moved to Omaha. It's looking for a church. Went to visit a number of them. Didn't hear much of the Bible taught. Heard a lot of stories. Oh, maybe we'd read a passage or two and then we'd launch into stories and truisms and principles for life, but didn't spend much time in the text of the Scripture. Uh, one in particular struck me. Um, went to one of the uh, larger churches in Omaha. And uh, the pastor was relatively new at the church. And, and he stood up and he had his... Bible in his hand, and he actually read one verse out of the Bible at the very first start, and he waved it around all service long. But honestly, he talked about himself. And he, and he talked about how that morning he, he knew he loved his congregation because he cried while he prayed for his congregation. Now, I'm sitting in the congregation, and I'm going... The way I would really know if you love these people is if you spent 25 hours this week preparing the message from the Word so we could hear from God instead of from you. Right? I didn't need to hear his stories. I needed to hear God's stories. What did God want to tell me from his Word? 
Because honestly, the word of the Lord was rare that morning in that large church of over 2,000 people. So the word is rare in Israel in these days. And it can be rare in our day because of a lack of spiritual leadership and a commitment to the word of God. And it was rare in the days of the judges and in the early days of 1 Samuel because of people who don't have ears to hear. Jesus spoke of this in Mark 9. Paul spoke of it in 2 Timothy 4 about people who want their ears to be tickled by leaders who don't teach the Word of God, but appeal to the worldly desires of people's hearts. The Word of God is important. The Lord is about to bring an end, though, in Israel, in 1 Samuel 3, to the scarcity of His Word He will break his silence and bring in a new era through which the boy Samuel, who is growing into a young man, will put the word front and center before God's people. Look at verse 2 with me. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of the God was, where the ark of God was. Note where Samuel is. He's lying in the temple. And notice, the light of the lamp of God has not gone out. Now that might only mean that it was getting close to morning. Okay? Because the priest would light the lampstand in the temple at evening, at twilight every day, and it would burn all night until dawn. But it seems like in the light of our passage, in the context of 1 Samuel 2 and 1 Samuel 1, and and Samuel coming on the scene, and God getting rid of the corrupt spiritual leadership in Israel, that the light not going out yet in the temple means the truth of God is still alive. There's a hint of that here. No doubt about it. And notice also what the author of 1 Samuel says. Samuel is where the ark of God was. I mean, he could have just said, Samuel was in the temple with Eli. But no, he makes a point of of, of pointing out that Samuel is near the presence of the Lord. He's making a point about how God is growing and building Samuel into the man who will lead his people. Point two, verses four to ten. The persistence of God's call. Verse four. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli. And and Eli said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lie down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. It's almost a little humorous, isn't it? Okay, 
Little Samuel, Samuel is probably, he's not so little at this point, he's probably about 12, 13, 14, maybe 15. He's a young, he's getting to be a young man. But Samuel hears God calling him. And he thinks it's Eli. And what does Eli say? I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. I've I've said that to my own kids. Go back to bed. Here it happens twice. Go back to bed. What are you up for? I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. Well, God's not done. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the word and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. So here we are, in the midst of great darkness in Israel. The priests are wicked. The people are living for themselves. But God is one who is speaking in the midst of the darkness, and God's words are calling Samuel. Four times in these seven verses, God calls Samuel. Verses 4, 6, 8, and 10. At least eight times in these seven verses, the Hebrew word for call is used. Do we get the point? The Lord is calling. And when Samuel doesn't get it, the Lord calls again, and he calls again, and he calls again. The Lord is persistent and relentless in his call. He's going to keep calling until Samuel responds. He's out to raise up Samuel to lead his people and to save his people through Samuel. This is important. The key truth is found in verse 9. Note how Eli tells Samuel to answer. You have to give Eli some credit here. A lot of of negative things about Eli. A lot of bad things about Eli. But the image of God in Eli comes through. Keep in mind, Eli calls Samuel a little earlier in this passage, my son. Eli has been Samuel's, essentially his foster father, since he was very, very, very young. Probably three years old. There's a love that Eli has for Samuel. And a love that Samuel has for Eli. It's a very very human story here in chapter 3. But in verse 9, Eli tells him. So back to Eli's answer to Samuel. He tells Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Eli's advice to Samuel is, if God is speaking to you, you have one responsibility, and that is to listen. Listen to God. The persistence of God's call and His word is part of His grace. The Lord takes the initiative and calls Samuel. 
Samuel never experienced anything like this before. Verse 7 says that Samuel didn't know the Lord at this point. That simply means the word of the Lord has not yet been revealed to him as a prophet of God. This is a new experience for Samuel. He's not been through this before. But God is going to grow him. God will patiently grow him. But he is going to effectively call Samuel to himself to be his prophet for his people. No doubt about that. Most of us, me included, as I look back at at, at when I came to faith in Jesus, I can see God calling me. I didn't realize it at the time. I came to a place in my life where I believed in Christ and, and I, and we must believe in Jesus. We, we must be converted. Matthew 18 tells us. But God was calling me. Uh, I talked to a young lady a few weeks ago who had a different experience. She's, she was an atheist. And she said, I knew God was calling me to salvation. I just knew it. Um, I didn't have a choice, she said. I had to believe. Incredible story. You don't hear it quite that way that often. But God calls those that He has chosen. And here, He has chosen Samuel to lead His people. That brings us to point three. The trauma of God's Word. Let's look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In other words, this is a big deal. This is going to have an impact. This is important. The Lord goes on. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Here we have the shock of God's word in verses 11 to 14. Think of the shock this must have been for Samuel. Samuel, who has great affection for Eli. Eli's going to die, and his whole family, his house, is going to die too. Samuel hears about the sword of God's judgment, of God's word regarding Eli. God is consistent about exposing sin in our own hearts. Some don't like that fact. Some don't like the fact God judges sin. But remember the fact that while God is judging sin here, He's also showing mercy. Mercy to His people by removing Eli, the corrupt priest, from his position and his sons from their positions. Let me ask a question. Do you like priests who are predators? Do you like pastors that are predators? No. God doesn't either. 
And here God is removing the priests who are predators so he can raise up new spiritual leadership for his people. He's raising up a messenger to bring his word to his people, a prophet. The message here is that God punishes sin and graciously is going to give Israel a new prophet, a new priest, and a new king in place of Eli's family to lead his people. That is gracious on God's part. Clean house. Start over. It brings us to point four. The proclamation of God's word, verses 15 to 18. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. It's a very human moment here in verse 15. Samuel, a young man, you can feel the tension. Samuel's afraid. He doesn't want to tell Eli this bad news. Now keep in mind, Samuel doesn't know this, but Eli's already been told. At the end of chapter 2, the man of God, we don't know who he is, the man of God, a prophet of God, had come to Eli and had given the judgment to Eli about what was going to happen to he and his family. Now, you would have thought that Eli would have responded to that warning in chapter 2, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have thought he'd have gone right out and he'd have dismissed his sons from their priestly duties and gotten rid of them, put them in the unemployment line, right? Did he do that? Nope. Just told him, you're bad boys, don't do that anymore. And sent him back to work. But interestingly, in the passage we just read, verse 13... God tells Samuel that Eli's sons were blaspheming against God. Do you know what the penalty is? What the, what the penalty is for blaspheming God in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel? Somebody tell me. Stoning. It's, it's a capital offense. It's stoning. What did Eli do? Nothing. Nothing. Don't do it, guys. Stop it. This looks bad. But here's little Samuel having to convey this message. Oftentimes, the prophets of God are called to tell people things that they'd rather not tell them. Uh, Oftentimes, pastors from the pulpit are told by God's word to preach God's judgment. Do you think we like it? We're human too. We don't like to tell bad news. But we don't like to lie to people either. And it's not loving to lie to people about right, wrong, sin, and evil, and God's judgment of it. And here Samuel has his first test as a prophet of God, which is go and tell Eli. Tell Eli this this tough news. Verse 15, verse 16, pardon me. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? 
Do not hide it from me. Um, Got to give Eli a little credit here too. He, he's going to pull this out of Samuel. He's, he's not going to let him stuff it inside his little heart. Let it out, Samuel. And then Eli gets really serious about it. He calls down a curse about as strong as he can say to Eli, you better tell me this. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Notice again in verse 16, the love Eli has for Samuel, my son. And verse 17 is a good response from Samuel, from Eli. Tell me, Samuel, tell me what the Lord said. Don't keep it to yourself, tell me. But verse 18 is not a good response from Samuel, or from Eli, pardon me. Eli does not, again, remove his sons from their priestly office. Eli does not, again, call down judgment upon them. Instead, he just says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He's resigned to the fact, and he's not going to do anything about his sons. There is no change of heart. Eli still loves his sons more than he loves the Lord. That was the charge against him in 1 Samuel 2. Who do you love, Eli? Do you love the Lord or do you love your sons? Now, God doesn't say he can't love his sons at all. As a matter of fact, it's a godly thing to love. Jesus said, you must love me more than father and mother and sisters and brothers. God must come first in our hearts. Nothing else can come before it. And here, Samuel passes the test. Samuel's a real prophet of God now. He spoke the words of God to Eli, no matter how hard it was to say it. Well, what happens as a result? Point five. The establishment of God's messenger. Verse 19 through chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. From as far in the north in Israel to as far in the south in Israel, everybody know Samuel is a prophet of the Lord. Verse 21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Keep in mind the chapter divisions are, are artificially in there. They're not in the word of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God's word has returned to Israel. God has made it happen through Samuel. Samuel. 
Verse 20 says, all Israel knows. Now notice the trajectory of this passage of chapter 3 and the very first verse of chapter 4. Where has it come from and where did it go? In chapter 3, verse 1, we were told, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But now, at the end of chapter 3, the very first verse of chapter 4, we are told, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And notice how the word of Samuel is now synonymous with the word of the Lord. Samuel's words are God's words. He is God's messenger. He is God's prophet. Notice, too, the reversal of fortunes that happens in this chapter. It was foreshadowed back in chapter 2. In Hannah's song, in Hannah's prayer. And there we read, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. It's fulfilled in chapter 3. Those who were powerful and influential and had the Word of God but didn't listen to it, they are replaced by a feeble boy who by the world's standards is powerless but he listens and hears the word of God. He acts on it when God tells him something. This Samuel will proclaim the word of the Lord to God's people. And in so doing, he is preparing the way for Israel's king. He's preparing the way for a man who's after God's own heart to become king in Israel for King David. That's what the books of First and Second Samuel are about. Are about King David coming to the throne of Israel. God's man on the throne. And David is given a promise. David has promised that from his house, from his family, will come a son of David who will rule over Israel forever. The promise is given in Second Samuel 7. And that son of David's way is going to be prepared by another prophet, by John the Baptist. See a lot of similarities between Samuel and John the Baptist. Both are preparing the way for a king. Samuel for a king who's after God's own heart, but at the same time still a flawed king. A king who is a sinner, King David. Had a horrible sin in his life. But John the Baptist will usher in another king, an ultimate king, King Jesus, who, like Samuel, was once a boy, was born in a humble manger, a boy who also increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, as Luke says, quoting 1 Samuel 2. I was reminded of first chapter one, the first chapter of Peter, his first letter, verses 23 to 25, about the importance of the word of God in our lives as Christians. Peter wrote, since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. This Word is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. This is the work God does through His Word. Praise be to God that we also have the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word given in the written Word. And He has spoken to us through that Son. Jesus Christ, the climax of the revelation of God to us. What a blessing. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says it well. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Today, King Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, and as Romans 8 told us, He is interceding for us right now. Yes, he died a death on a cross 2,000 years ago. He paid a debt that he did not owe. But as the God-man, he paid that debt for us. He paid the infinite penalty for sin by dying so that we might have life. In the flow of biblical history, of biblical revelation... Samuel is pointing us to King David, who's pointing us to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, may we have a love for your word. It is so easy, Father, for us to take your word for granted. To not spend time on it. To not spend time with you in it. Father, help us. For we are sinners prone to be distracted by the events of everyday life. Prone to want to spend the time that we could spend in your word doing other things? May we see from your word, from 1 Samuel 3, the importance of it as your people. The importance of it being taught. The importance of it in changing our lives, in molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. What a great Savior we have. 
May we not neglect his word. May we rejoice in the salvation and the gospel that you have provided. May we be reminded every day. May we come to the foot of the cross and see that we are but sinners and Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins and that we would live our lives in light of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.